Welcome to the HPG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, well, welcome back to the podcast. We have finished the narrative story of the Old Testament, and we're kind of doing a rewind to look at five books in particular today. That's a section uh, in the middle of the Old Testament that's hard. To, it, it doesn't cover just one time period. It's kind of sprinkled throughout, so that's why we're kind of putting it here at the end. Um, but it's called the, the wisdom books or the wisdom literature, and it's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs. And we are just going to say at the outset, like with a lot of these, we're going warp speed. <laughs> we're not going to do justice to any of these books. And of course, Psalms is massive. We could do multiple yeah. episodes just on Psalms. But we're hoping to give you at least a flavor of each of these five books and kind of how they fit together. Um, but this is a really valuable, really helpful section of Scripture. Yeah, it, it is beautiful, and it's so vast in its range, which mm-hmm. is really, really cool. And that's so true of our literature today as well. There's all different types of literature that can all kind of had the same point and the same meanings behind them. So it's really cool to see the different styles of, of poetry or just narrative or writing in general that illustrate some of the same points throughout the Bible. So today we're going to start off with the book of Job, and it's it's going to be um, a really cool kind of start to understanding what this literature looks like. But yeah. first, I think it would be important for us to kind of talk about the, the balance of all of these different books. Yeah, and, and that's something that's really helped me as I've tried to read these books. And one of the things you're going to realize, and I'll use the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes to illustrate this. Um, Of the five books, Proverbs really deals with kind of the general principles for wise living. You know, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15, verse 1. And would you say that's generally true? Yeah. In an argument, if you use a calm voice, generally that's going to cool somebody else down in the argument. Um, But is that always true? (laughs) No. It's not always true, but that's still wisdom. Like, don't, you know, lose your temper. Yeah, don't lose your head. Yeah, Yeah. in a a conversation. That's good wisdom. Live by that. Work on that. But realize that it's a a principle, not a promise. Um, it's a truism, I've heard it said. Yeah, 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 kind of like, a, like, yeah that's generally true. Right. Um, but not a hard and fast rule. And but, you should do your best to do that at all times. Yeah. yeah. But if you only ever read the book of Proverbs, you would come away with a view of life that's very much like a vending machine. Well, if I live wise, if I do these easy steps, then my life is going to be great. I'm going to be rich. I'm going to live a long time. Uh, things are going to go well for me if I just do these five easy tips. You yeah. know, number four will shock you. Um, but but that's really not what Proverbs is all about. And then the w- wisdom literature is going to balance that yeah. out. And so the book of Ecclesiastes on the other end of that says, yeah, well, you know how, the, and by the way, the, we're almost positive the writer of Ecclesiastes was Solomon. Many of the Proverbs were written by Solomon. And so same guy will equally say, the opposite. He will say, well, that's not always the case. Um, the poor man is always going to lose out, and the rich man's always going to win. And he'll say things like that. And he's trying to illustrate this balance here that, that we live in a broken world. Yeah. Things are not always going to be perfect. It's, it's not a vending machine. And living in an imperfect world is supposed to point us to a perfect God. And that's going to be the balance that the Ecclesiastes right. uh, Ecclesiastes fear, fear God and keep His commandments. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but through the book, he's like, you know, if you're rich, you die. If you're poor, you die. If you're right. wise, you die. If you're foolish, you die. You know, the old die, the young die. And like, what's the point? Vanity of vanities. You know, everything's yeah. pointless. And there's injustices all over the place. And so, if the only thing you read was the book of Ecclesiastes, you'd come out with a pretty pessimistic view mm-hmm. of life. Like, well, it doesn't really matter what I do. I'm going to die anyway. But the thing is, like, that's just raw observations about life. And oftentimes that's true as well. And so in the middle, if you kind of put Proverbs at one extreme of, like, everything's going to go well if you just live right. And on the other extreme, but life happens. And, wow, it's hard and random and feels so crazy in this broken world. There's this tension that's set up between those two bookends. And in the middle of that tension 
are particularly the book of Job and the book of Psalms, where people are lamenting, like, what's going on? Why am I suffering? Where's God in the world? Like, I'm praying to him and crying out to him. What's going on? And, and in Job, what's kind of interesting is the friends have a very Proverbs view of the world. Yeah, they do. And they assume, well, Job, since you're suffering, you must have broken you know, these principles in Proverbs. You must be wicked. And we'll talk more about that in just a second. Um, and in Psalms, you have all kinds of different guys, uh, David and Moses and a couple of them, Solomon, crying out and being like, God, where are you? Like, I'm trying to live righteous here, but... I'm suffering. Why are the wicked people doing well and I'm mm-hmm. hurting? Psalm 73, Psalm of Asaph is a re- really famous reflection on that. So all that to say, don't just read one of the wisdom books without reading the other ones. They really help balance each other out and all of them point us to God and to his character and how we can learn from, take the wisdom from each one of these books. Just really helpful. Yeah, and so uh, let's just go ahead and dive into the book of Job here. Uh, Job is really interesting because we really don't know when it was written or where it was written. And that is true of some of the other books of the Bible, and that doesn't shake our faith at all. Job is one of the oldest books of the Bible that we have, um, and it's a really beautiful look at how we can walk with God through suffering and also making sure we're not questioning God and trying to act like we know why exactly everything's going on. And so the book of Job starts in a really interesting way. Um, There's this man from the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Had seven sons and three daughters. He had all kinds of animals, livestock, had a great many of land. And then there's like this interesting contest that happens where Satan will come into the story he will go and talk to god and will basically say to him the only reason job is a faithful servant of yours is because of all this stuff that you've given him that that's the only reason why he's staying faithful to you and it's really interesting what god does with that um in verse uh uh verse 11 this is still Satan talking. He says, uh, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to, uh, to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of Yahweh. And so Satan comes to God and says, look, it, let me take everything away from him and I will show you how you will curse him. And God actually agrees. <laughs> it's very, it's right. a very interesting little uh, story here. But God has faith, if you will, in Job, in, in the faith that he has in Yahweh. And so Satan, man, he, he really does uh, go at Job. Uh, he takes away his family. He takes away his livestock. And he doesn't take his life because God said he wasn't allowed to. And Job is distraught. Um, Job will say, this is in Job 121, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Satan was wrong. Um, Job was a faithful servant of the Lord's, despite all the stuff that he had. And believe it or not, there's more to this story. (laughs) I think we sometimes stop short of the rest of the book of Job, because it's going to be Job's friends trying to explain to him why he went through all this. Yeah, well, and in Job 2, I mean, there's a second round of trials where Satan, you know, is frustrated because, well, that didn't work. Uh, so the Lord allows Satan to take Job's health away from him, and he just suffers with terrible sicknesses. And actually, it gets so bad that his, even his wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? Basically, get it over with. Yeah. And he won't. Um, and he, he didn't sin with his lips in the beginning. And three of Job's friends hear about these terrible tragedies that have happened to Job. Of course, Job doesn't know what's going on in heaven. He doesn't know the conversations between God and Satan that are going on behind the scenes. He's just like, what is going on in my life? But his three friends come to him, and the best thing they do in the whole book is they sit with him for seven days in silence. And they're just there for him. But then Job opens his mouth, and, and the next 
uh, several chapters, the next like 25 chapters, uh, chapter 3 through chapter 28, are going to be kind of a confusing read uh, that Job speaks up and then the friends think, oh, well, Job, we're pretty sure we know why you're suffering. And if you would just repent, this would all get better. And so there's some very repetitive, and I think it's intentionally confusing because all the friends are confused. Job is confused. But basically what ends up happening is is they have the wrong concept of God and how he works. And so the friends blame Job. And Job is saying, no, I'm not wicked. I'm not sinful. And, And Job starts to question God through this. And by the way, I think that the Job didn't sin with his lips only applies to chapters one and two. Correct. By the end of the book, Job's going to repent yes. of what he said. And Job, it just gets more and more intense as you go through these cycles that the friends get more vicious and Job gets more vicious. Yeah. And it doesn't really go anywhere, but it's a it's a crazy search for wisdom as they try to figure this out. One excerpt I'll read, just a couple verses here, is from Eliphaz in chapter 4 and verse 7. Uh, he'll say, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble uh, harvest it. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they come to an end. Again, this is Eliphaz expressing his opinion on why Job is sin. But his first question, whoever perished being innocent? Right. I think it's really important here as we read the book of Job and talk about innocent suffering, my mind goes to Christ. Christ was as innocent as they come, and yet he still suffered. So this isn't true that, that if you're completely innocent, you won't go through hard things. No, that's not the case. We live in a broken world. You will go through hard things. But the, the scriptures are here, and the Lord is here to help guide us around those hard things. And the book of Psalms is also going to be able to help us as we go through those hard things as well. So anyways, a lot of the friend's speeches revolve around this idea of, Job, there must be some reason, and things like that. Right, and and the why question is all over this book. Yeah. You know, the friends are like, why is Job suffering? Well, uh, because he's wicked, obviously. And Job is like, well, why am I suffering? Well, maybe God's not just. Now, he never curses God. He never turns his back and gives up on God. So Satan doesn't win the deal here. But Job really says some things about God that are, are not fair and not right, about God um, you know, not acting justly. Because to Job, it seems like this is not fair. I've been righteous. I did nothing to deserve this disaster. What's going on, God? And so Job is constantly asking for an answer from God. So tw- chapters 29 through 41 of the book, again, we're just huge overview here. There's, so before that, in chapters 3 through 28, there's three cycles of debate. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, three times over with Job answering in between. And then 29 through 41 are three big speeches. Chapters 29 through 31 is Job's final defense because he never stops saying, I really have been righteous. And you read his last chapter, Job 31, he goes down the list and says, listen, if I've been wicked, then punish me. But I haven't been. Here's all the ways I've been righteous and all the ways that I've been pure. Um, And then there's an interesting guy who shows up named Elihu who is younger than the three friends, and we didn't know he was eavesdropping on this whole conversation. And he shows up kind of out of nowhere, chapters 32 through 37, and he, I think, there's different views on this, but I think Elihu actually helps Job. Yeah, and he says some things that are vastly different from what the other friends were saying. He, He seems to be a little bit more on the money. Well, and he actually quotes Job back to himself and says, Job, here's what you said about God. And here's why that's not right. He's like, he was listening to Job. The friends were kind of talking past each other. Mm-hmm. And Job, it's an exercise in futility, like the back and forth. But Elihu, I think, does two things. is He answers Job in a way that actually helps him because he gives Job an opportunity to respond, and Job doesn't respond. And Elihu helps prepare Job for the Lord speaking to him because the Lord's not going to give Job any answers. Elihu's going to give him some... Wisdom. I won't say he gives him answers. He doesn't presume to know why Job is suffering. He says, Job, don't talk about God this way. Yeah. And hey, Job, you know, God can actually speak to people through suffering. There's actually some things you can learn by these hard things that are happening to you. Now, again, he doesn't apply that across the board, but he gives him some really helpful answers. So, again, all this is kind of hard to wrap our minds around a first read-through. It takes a lot of digestion to, to see this. 
But then the Lord yes. comes at the end here. And let's talk about that. So what's really cool, hovering in the background of this whole book, of course, is God. God is hearing all of these things that they're talking about. And now God, in chapter 38, is going to speak up. And this is in chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And God will go on to express, None of you have any right to be speaking on my behalf. Or to question him. Or to question him at all. You weren't there at the foundation or when the foundations of the earth were made. Were you the ones that made these great creatures like the Viathan and Behemoth and all these others? God puts them in their place and says, what do, you, what do you guys think you're doing here? You don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, and how true is that of us? How often do we want to, oh, well, well maybe God did it for this reason. And we want to speculate for him. Hush. God speaks for himself. Let, let God be God. You be the creature. You're, you're not the creator. And that's really what God comes in and does for them. And it, if you're going to take some time to read from Job today, read Job 38 through 41. That Those are the sections I would encourage you to read. Yeah, it's really powerful. And again, Job wants an answer from God. But God does not owe Job an answer. God doesn't owe Job anything. Uh, it was his grace that gave him his abundance at the beginning. And God teaches Job and helps him. And so the last chapter of Job is really kind of the conclusion to the book, whereas chapters 1 and 2 were kind of the introduction. And Job's conclusion is, first of all, to repent. Uh, He says specifically uh, in Job 42, verse 3, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Um, And so he repents and says, Yeah, verse 6. Yeah, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes, uh, Job recognizes, whoa, I, I did not get this. I have suffered so much, and yet I still need to be humble before God. God understands all of this in a way that I don't. He doesn't give me an answer right now, and I'm okay with that. I, I, have, I have opened my mouth too much. I, I need to, to be quiet and know that he's God. Um, and so Job does end with God giving more grace to Job. He yep. restores his fortunes, restores his family. Um, and so he, he, he blesses him um, even more at the end, not because Job was perfect, uh, not because Job said everything perfectly about God, but he never turned his back on God. And he never uh, cursed God like Satan said he would if God took away his possessions and his health. Um, so Job is a really fascinating book about suffering and about the search for wisdom mm-hmm. and how, like, where do we find wisdom when we suffer? Yeah. Well, that moves us into the book of Psalms. We're just going to kind of work right through it is here in the Bible. And uh, the book of Psalms is, is really big. <laughs> 150 Psalms. Uh, they are not chapters, but they are, they are Psalms. Thank you. That's a soapbox of mine. <laughs> yes, just a little bit. So if you hear me say Psalm chapter 51, it'll just be... You'll so, hear a little slap uh, in the background. It'll, it'll be much. just because I'm trying to mess with Stephen. Not a chapter. Um, or even better, Psalms chapter 52. There you go. Um, but anyways, just, and it's good with Scripture and recognizing that this is Hebrew poetry. We do our best to speak about it in the way that it was written and talked about. So try our best to do that. Um, for the longest time, I didn't know this, Stephen, but the book of Psalms is broken up into five different books, isn't it? Yes. And th- what's interesting is, so the Psalms, it's, it's hard to say just one thing about Psalms because there's so many different kinds of Psalms. But they are organized uh, by some kind of editor into five sections, Psalm 1 through uh, 41. You'll notice at the end there's like this praise thing. You can see it most clearly if you read uh, the end of Psalm 72, where it says uh, that now the, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Um, so there's obviously some kind of, oh, there's some organization to this. It's not just completely random. But um, what's fairly interesting to me is in these five books, at the beginning of Psalms, there are more sad songs than happy songs, more songs of lament than psalms of praise. But by the end of the book, like books 1, 2, and 3, going up through Psalm 89, it's kind of increasingly dark. And then, starting in book 4, Psalm 90, building up 
through Psalm 107, book 5, to the end, the last five psalms are all psalms of praise. There's no lament by the end of the book, which I just think is a really cool journey if we read the psalms in order and kind of note the mood change as you move through the book of psalms. Now, again, there's some beautiful songs of praise toward the beginning and some deep laments toward the end. It's not exclusive, but if you look at, like, the whole thing, you can right. see that, hey, there's some organization here. Um, you also see pockets of organization where there's, like, a collection of psalms by a certain author, uh, like Book 2, Psalm, starting with Psalm 42, starts with a whole collection from the sons of Korah. Um, which is the same core as Korah's Rebellion, but that's another story for another time. And book three starts with Psalm 73. There's a collection of psalms by a guy named Asaph. Mm -hmm. uh, we referenced Psalm 73 earlier that he's struggling right. with. Why are the wicked prospering? And I'm trying to be righteous and I'm suffering, similar to Job's, some of Job's questions. But there are several different kinds of psalms that we, if we try to categorize them. Some of them really defy categories. Um, but it's kind of cool to look at some of the different types of psalms. Yeah, and one other thing to note before we get into the types, the time period of the Psalms is vast, uh, yeah. from the time of Moses all the way to the return from captivity. And so we're dealing with a lot of time. Um, so it's just something to be thinking about. So uh, Psalms or genres of the Psalms uh, kind of break down into seven categories. The first one is praise. And this is one I think I was most familiar with when I first started off um, studying the Psalms. Mm -hmm. And we'll just take a look at Psalm 8 uh, as we think about praise. And it sounds like this. Our Lord, our Lord. And actually, this is our Yahweh. Uh, oh, excuse me. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. That's just the first two psalm, uh, verses of Psalm 8. But you kind of get the idea. It's, it's praising, worshiping, lifting up God's name and saying, you are great for this reason. And uh, a lot of the psalms that are praising like this, they will end in a praise as well. And th those bracket each other. So verse 1 was, O Lord, our Lord. You see it at verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Inclusio, yeah. is that the, the right word the there? the technical term. Bookends yeah. is the is yeah, easier bookends, way to remember so. it. But anyways, it's just lifting up God's name and, and telling him how great he is. And as good as that is for God, it's good for us to do as well. Yes. And so the Psalms, they take us through an emotional range. They, they show us these mountaintop moments where we're like, wow, God is awesome. He's so good. and I'm so blessed. And they show us how to pray and how to turn our times of joy and plenty to God. Mm -hmm. But then there's the Psalms of lament or, or sadness where they go all the way to the deepest valley and cry out to God in the midst of pain and suffering and why are you so far away? Uh, I mean, famously, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Or Psalm 51, where David is lamenting his sin. Um, and, and he says, uh, have, uh, Psalm 51, verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my, from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So sometimes it's suffering just because we're, life is hard. We're in a broken world. Enemies are coming against us and we're innocent. And other times we're crying out to God because we know we've sinned and we're dealing with the consequences of our sin. And on this particular psalm, it's interesting to note, if you're looking in your Bible or on your phone app, right under where it says Psalm 51, it's going to have like a little excerpt about what this psalm is about. And mine says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. That, that's actually biblical. That That's not the editors trying to insert where they think Psalm 51 is, but historically... This has been written and recorded when David had sinned with Bathsheba. So you'll see those in a few of the Psalms and realize that that's actually part of the Psalm. And so sometimes that's helpful to look at. Yeah, and that connects with the historical books. Sometimes you read First and Second Samuel, and then you go to the Psalms, and you're like, oh, well, like David wrote this in the cave like when this happened, or he wrote this when he was running from Saul or from Absalom. And it really enriches our reading of the historical books because you're like, oh, wow, like, I'm reading this, but I don't really see David. what David was thinking. And you go read the Psalms, and his heart just comes exploding off the page. Yes. Like, Whoa, like, this is how David's feeling in this moment and praying in this moment, praising God. And so they're really, each part of the Bible enriches all the other parts of the Bible. The more we understand one book, it helps us to understand all of the books. 
some other types of psalms. Uh, we talked about praise and lament. Another one is a psalm of thanksgiving, mm-hmm. which is kind of like a past tense lament, where you're looking back on a time when God delivered you from some deadly yeah. you know, situation, and now I'm coming back to God after crying out to him, and I'm giving thanks for yeah. him. So Psalm 34 is a great example of that uh, because in the subtitle that's given for a Psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. You can go back and read that story. And really dangerous situation for David that God ended up delivering him out of despite maybe some of his own foolishness on his own part. And David will say in Psalm 34, 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So he's thanking God look, and praising him in the process and, and looking at God and saying, thank you for this deliverance. Yeah. And there's going to be a lot of these throughout the book of Psalms. And, and really, you see the, the, the type of psalm in like verse 6 where he says, This poor man cried and the Lord heard him. And saved him out of all his troubles. He's looking back on a time when he was oppressed, and then he prayed to the Lord, cried out to him, and God rescued and, him. And now he's praising God for a previous deliverance. And perhaps the most famous line from this uh, psalm, rather, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Yeah, because David kind of turns to the audience then and says, Here, here's what God did for me. Yeah. And the Lord will, will take care of you too. I mean, it's not that the Lord doesn't let his people suffer, but he also brings them through suffering and out of suffering. And so that's uh, what the Psalms of Thanksgiving are all about. One really tough type of psalm to read, and this isn't really, I don't think there's any psalms that are completely this, but the psalms of cursing or the psalms of vengeance, the, the technical term is imprecatory I'm psalms. I'm glad you said that word because I normally get it wrong. Yeah, it's a, it's a big <laughs> one. But um, these are psalms that are kind of hard for us to deal with. Uh, you know, how can the psalmist, you know, curse his enemies and call down God's judgment on them. And Psalm 109 is one that's really tough. And again, there's there's little bits of well cursing sprinkled out lots of different psalms. And it's so interesting. Yeah, Psalm 139 is a great example of that as well. But uh, like, it's like they're calling on God to do something about the wickedness. And it, mm-hmm. it almost feels weird, for I think, for us on this end of the on this end of the Bible to, to call on God like this. But this is very common in, in the Psalms language. Psalm 109.1, O God of my praise, do not be silent, for they have opened the wicked and deceitful mouth against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They've also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without cause. In return for my love, they act as my accusers, but I'm in prayer. Thus they have repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let his another let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children wander about and beg and let them seek sustenance far from the ruined homes. It's pretty dark. Yeah. <laughs> He's asking for some hard things on these enemies of his. And it's kind of hard to work through is that something we're supposed to be praying for our enemies? Right. And, and we, there's more to talk about here than we have time to in this summary podcast. But the essence of these psalms is they are asking God to be the judge and asking God to do what they believe would be just. Now, our sense of justice is not always the same as God's sense of justice, and it's always important to note that. But notice that in these psalms of cursing, it's David and the other authors never say, I'm going to take my own vengeance. Right. What, what does it say? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so they do bring their desire for justice, for vengeance, to God. And say, God, you take care of this. This is what it seems to me should happen. And so they cry out to God for this and trust God. And we don't always know how everything is going to uh, turn out, how the Lord answers these. But they do help us see that when we have that sense of injustice, when we have that sense of this is not right, this is not good, we can go to God with that. Now, again, it's still hard to know exactly how to pray the same exact words that they say here. There's some things that are really hard to get our minds around. But I think at its core, we all feel that Mm -hmm. sense for justice. We need that, and we can cry out to God to, to do that. He is the ultimate source of justice in the end, and he will write all the wrongs in the world. 
at the end of all of this. Uh, going to another end of the spectrum with the Psalms are the wisdom Psalms. Easiest place to see this is at the very opening of the book of Psalms, and I do think it's on purpose that this is the opening Psalm. And it's a Psalm of wisdom. Um, really beautiful uh, image in Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Can you hear the wisdom in that? And even the flow in it, the man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. It's, it's wisdom from, from the psalmist himself, but also from God, to stay away from people like that and focus our attention on dwelling on, uh, on the Lord. So yeah. just simple wisdom. Yeah, and I mean, this is the, these are the psalms that sound like Proverbs. Mm. <laughs> um, and uh, Psalm 37 is another helpful example of that. Uh, psalm 119, this massive psalm that's an acrostic. It goes through the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and it's just praising the Word of God, like for the whole psalm. And so a lot of these psalms of wisdom are celebrating God's Word and the wisdom that it gives us. Um, there's also one of the things you'll see, and some, again, some psalms are all this way, some songs have elements of it, is the historical psalms or psalms of remembrance. And uh, Psalm 105 and 106 is a really cool example of this. These are the last two psalms of book four in the, psal- the big picture, book of psalms. But Psalm 105 is the story of God's faithfulness through the whole story of Israel's history. And he just like walks through and says, like, hey, here's what happened in the Exodus. Here's what happened in the time of the judges and the kings and different things. And then Psalm 106, which is the very next psalm, goes back and tells the same story, but from the perspective of, and here's how God's people blew it and sinned at every one of these historical stages, and they've continually been unfaithful to the covenant when God's been faithful to the covenant. So Psalm 105 and 106 are kind of meant to be read together. And again, you'll see some organization like that as you read through the psalms in order. um, And that you might not notice otherwise. And so I just think it's really helpful to see our story in terms of God mm-hmm. and in terms of his guiding hand through human history and learning to tell the story of who we are and who God's people are is really important. That narrative is always running in the background of who God is, his faithfulness to his promises. We've tried to emphasize that throughout this Old Testament overview and these historical Psalms really bring that into clear focus. Yeah. That takes us to the last one we'll talk about today, and that's royal psalms. It's not as many of them, but the few that there are, they're really important to see. The easiest one to see is in Psalm 110. And this is a really cool psalm to see on the other end of the New Testament, as you see the many times it's quoted about Jesus, the king. Um, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Does that sound familiar, Stephen? Yep, this is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Yeah. All but seven verses, but it's all over the place. Yeah, and especially the first two verses. Yeah. And um, it's really powerful because this psalm, again, when you talk about a royal psalm, you think about a king. And so sometimes the royal psalms are talking about an earthly king like David or Solomon or one of their descendants that God said, hey, David, one of your sons, your descendants, is going to be king forever. But ultimately, Psalm 110 points us to the ultimate king who's going to come and rule forever, not just as king, but also as priest, which is fascinating. In verse 4, he'll talk about the Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole rabbit hole to talk about that. But in Psalm 110, you see king and priest coming together. And Hebrews 7 and other chapters of the New Testament just reflect on all that's packed into these seven short verses. But the whole idea of these is in the book of Psalms, there is a longing for the future king or the future anointed one, you might say the Messiah or the Christ. And so these Psalms, all of the Psalms find a fulfillment in Jesus on some level. But the royal Psalms in particular, it's easier to see like, oh yeah, this is anticipating the perfect ultimate king in Jesus. And so every different kind of psalm, again, some of them don't fit neatly into one of these seven categories, praise, lament, thanksgiving, cursing, wisdom, historical, or royal. 
um, but some of them really do. And sometimes when you start to wrap your mind around, oh, okay, like this is this flavor of psalm, and that's really similar to this other one. You can kind of start to make more sense of them if you have an idea of the, the type, the category that the psalm falls into. Yeah. So that wraps up the book of Psalms pretty well. <clears throat> We're going to do our best to cover Proverbs next, which there are 31 chapters in Proverbs. Just a little hint for Bible reading. Uh, there are 31 days in a month, and so you can do a proverb a day. So it's kind of, kind of nice if you ever want to read through it like that. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so it, it, very vast in time as well, all the way from time of Solomon to Hezekiah, predominantly written by Solomon. Uh, you will see some excerpts, like in chapter 4, where Solomon's like, my dad actually said this, and he'll quote something his dad said. But then the last few chapters of uh, Proverbs is written by a couple of different authors, but predominantly written by Solomon. And uh, it kind of breaks down into three sections, uh, chapter 1 through 9, are just speeches, this father to his son trying to warn him about things in the world. And you could probably guess what some of those things are, uh, sexuality, women, that that kind of thing. Um, gang, but also, basically yeah, gang activity. Yeah, gang activity right there. Let us trade by bad peers. Chapter 1, 8 through 19 talks about that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then you also are going to see Lady Wisdom, as we'll call her, kind of rear her head and, and speak up and say, hey, heed my advice, listen to it. And it's really cool to see um, and one of the things Solomon is most concerned about for his sons are them not listening to the voice of Lady Wisdom. Mm-hmm. And uh, Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. There's a reason why that's at the beginning, beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. Don't just read this and ignore it. You're a fool if you do. You, you've got to listen to the advice here. Yep. And so many people, I think, will go through the Proverbs and just discard them and throw them out. Yeah. And so we'll see kind of throughout this book, the way Proverbs, the way Solomon or, and is writing, he, he will personify wisdom as this woman, but he'll also personify folly or foolishness as a woman. And they're both crying out like, hey, listen to me. No, listen to me. And the young, naive guy is at the crossroads, like trying to sort through these voices and make good decisions in his life. And so the middle section of the book, after that long introduction, chapters 1 through 9, chapters 10 through 29, I've heard these called kind of like the fortune cookies of the Bible because they're generally just two-line, short little snippets of wisdom but are profoundly helpful and worth meditating on and chewing on over and over again. And they're on all kinds of different topics uh, about money, about relationships, about anger, about parenting, about all sorts of different things and sometimes they can feel pretty random but also that's kind of how life happens right it's like oh man i need some wisdom about money oh man i need need some wisdom about relationships oh i need to listen my anger you know and you also see some themes as you read through them in order kind of like the psalms they can seem random but you'll sometimes really see some organization as you go through and there's little pockets of proverbs that go together um but it's really helpful to remember, like we mentioned earlier, that they are principles, not promises. Uh, they, things will generally be true. They're very helpful for wise living. But also remember, that doesn't mean you're not going to suffer. And it doesn't mean that everything's going to go great for you. If you just follow these easy tips, that, that's not the way Proverbs works. Right. And so that needs to be running at the back of our mind as we read and apply these. Yeah. So in, in chapters 10 through 29, it's just going to run through many of those great little uh excerpts. I, one time I had a friend of mine tell me that he sees the Proverbs like little fortune cookies, which I thought was kind of cool. And they're good to commit to memory and to think about and, and be things to be working on. Um, and then, of course, chapter 30 and 31, it, it kind of ends with these Proverbs from people other than Solomon that really end on a note of trying to do what's right by people yeah. while also being a good wife, um, kind of kind of cool there yeah there's kind of kind of a lady wisdom-esque thing but there's this worthy woman yeah. at the end and of course very famously proverbs 31 and um i think it's really interesting this is a coincidental thing but proverbs 31 talks about kind of the ideal woman of wisdom and job 31 mm-hmm. in job's final defense he says here's how good i've been it's kind of an ideal man of wisdom right uh, that Job's defense of himself gives us a good model of character. So I think it's kind of cool that Job 31, Proverbs 31, again, in our English Bibles, that it's kind of like, oh, it's cool that it turned out that way, but I think that's kind of cool to read those. But Proverbs is really important. Um, 
just because it gives us very, very practical advice and wisdom for daily living. And sometimes in these books of poetry, we can feel kind of lost, kind of like, man, this is a lot of tough language. Like, what, what does this really mean for me? But Proverbs is like, oh, okay, I can, I can work on that. <laughs> like, um, very practical, very straightforward. Um, and so, again, just it's amazing and what a blessing it is that God has preserved all these different kinds of wisdom yeah. for us Amen. that help us in different ways. So that moves us well into the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, it's a really interesting little book um, written by wh- what we think is likely Solomon. Um, he's described in Ecclesiastes 1.1, uh, the, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then same thing in chapter 1 and verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And so it just kind of leads us to believe that this is Solomon. And Solomon is going to, in this book, really answer the question, what is the meaning of life? And uh, chapter 1, verse 2, the, the classic cliche of Ecclesiastes, if you will, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's kind of his starting conclusion. Uh, some of the newer translations, like the NIV, say uh, meaningless. All is meaningless. And kind of starts off with a depressing uh, view of the world. But as you look around it, just the, the world, the sad things that happen, the the, the death, the destruction, the, everything that goes on, it all just feels meaningless. It's like, what, what can I do to avoid all this? Nothing. There's, there's nothing you can do to avoid all of this. And that's kind of where he starts. And he's looking at the world from what he calls an under-the-sun perspective. And it's the idea of if we were just to look at the world in a box and imagine there being no God, what would be the end of all the things we tried to fill ourselves up with? And so in chapter 2, he begins this test where he'll go through laughter and and wine or alcohol, uh, just work, wealth, women, anything he could get his hands on that normally make people happy, and he will try to fill himself up with that, everything that's under the sun, that is. And his conclusion in verse 11 of chapter 2 Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. There was nothing here that could fill him up. And really, the the whole point Solomon is trying to make is, if you cannot find eternal fulfillment in anything under the sun, maybe you need to start looking above the sun. Maybe there's a solution past what's in this box that we live in. And that's exactly the conclusion he's going to come to in chapter 12. That's right. Is, is, as, as he has kind of conducted this experiment and is recorded, you know, hey, like, here's my observations. And he observes a lot more things as you move throughout the book. Chap- kind of chapters 1 through 6 are generally observations about life. And chapters 7 through most of 12 are applications from the observations. But again, it's kind of hard to outline exactly. It, it is very it's hard. It's kind of yeah. uh, all over the place. But, I mean, what a blessing that, like, I don't have to go and test all these different things to know that they're not ultimately going to satisfy me. Someone's already tried that. And actually, a ton of people have already tried that. But Solomon was in a position, apparently, to try them all and to come away with, you know what? It's really empty. Uh, None of these things ultimately gave me meaning and purpose. But when he gets to the end of the book, um, in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13, he says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Um, And that's where he comes to. He's like, you've got to have God. You've got to have something more than this physical world to give you purpose and meaning and to give you perspective on a life beyond this. What happens when we die? Where do we go when we die? He doesn't explore all of that in the book, but he he points out that the more you explore this world and try to figure out what's good in it, the more it points you beyond this world that like this can't be all there is. This this would be totally depressing and totally discouraging if this is, world is all there is under the sun. And so Ecclesiastes really helps us when we start to be disillusioned with the world. And we say, oh, yeah, that sounds like Ecclesiastes. And it encourages us at the end, we got to get to God. And again, this points us to other bits of the wisdom literature. Okay, let's go talk about God and let's search for him and learn to know him in these other books. Yeah. 
So switching gears almost all together, we're, we're going to end on a book that's it's actually a fascinating book. We don't want to downplay its significance because it's in the Bible for a reason. Yeah. And if you've ever read Song of Solomon, you might ask, wait, this is in the Bible? Yeah. And <laughs> just turning the page from chapter 12, verse 14 of Ecclesiastes to Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1, it's, it's very stark. It's very, very, uh-huh. very different. Um, and so the Song of Solomon is about a love between a man and a woman. It's romantic love. It is a collection of Hebrew love poetry. And um, it it, uh, is embarrassing to read out loud in a public setting. Um, There's a lot of things that you can tell. This, uh, I'm pretty sure this book is talking about sexual activity, but it's in metaphors and veiled language. So it's not explicit in that sense, but it's also not G-rated. Um, There are some very clear metaphors that talk about what God created to be good in marriage, the sexual relationship. And so there's a lot of practical advice that we can get from Song of Solomon, even though it's kind of hard to understand and outline, like, what's going on, who's speaking. Uh, Some Bibles might have, like, a he and a she and others in there based on the, the gender of the Hebrew nouns and pronouns and things. But um, one of the main things that's kind of challenging is like, well, what do we do with this book as a whole? Like, how do we view the book? What's happening in the book? Um, So there's some different views that come up with that. Yeah, so kind of the two, uh, there's actually three views on how to look at the book. The first one is a narrative view. And uh, it's just simply two people, like a man and a woman, and they're like writing back and forth to one another, and they're saying, hey, this is how I feel and think about you, and the other's like, oh, this is how I feel and think about you. It's their love notes, passed back and forth. And maybe it's Solomon and this, uh, you know, girl, the Shunammite is what she, right. how she's described, um, and maybe it's like, you know, even of all of the women that Solomon had, 300 wives, 700 concubines, and this one girl has captured his heart. And the idea of this view is that, well, it's a narrative story. From chapter 1 to chapter 7, it just kind of flows from one thing to another to another, and and it builds on each other. Um, so that's one possibility for how the, the book reads. Now, some people also view that there's two different men speaking, and actually, like, one of them is Solomon. Solomon does show up in the text a couple times of the book, but then there's this shepherd boy who's not Solomon, and there's, like, this competition almost between Solomon and her true love, who's this shepherd. And, right. And it's, again, hard to know exactly what's going on, so there's a couple of ways to view um, the book. But either way, you can recognize that this is love poetry and that whoever is speaking, uh, this is a celebration of romantic love. Yeah. Um, that's what's going on here. Second option is the allegorical view, uh, which is just the idea that this romantic love that's being talked about is a symbol for Christ and the church, which is not all that uh, crazy whenever you get to Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33, and you see some of the same language used to talk about Christ and the church being his bride in which he doesn't want there to be any blemish whatsoever. And so that that's another way some people take this book. And I think sometimes people come to this view because they're almost embarrassed by like, the Bible can't just talk that frankly about romantic love. And so this has to be some kind of uh, metaphor like this can't be literally what this is talking about this is something else and again I think that there are shadows of Christ in the church in this book that like ultimately all of these books point us to Jesus all of these books help us to better understand who he is and his love for us um, but I think ultimately if you view the book as purely allegory that none of this is literal you miss some of the point of the book, and that is, yeah, like yeah. this is talking about human interaction in marriage. And then the third view, which I really like, is just the collection view. No storyline, just a collection of love notes. Like it's just, it's just a bunch of different Hebrew poetry, love poetry that's been collected and compiled in, in the Song of Songs. Yeah, and, and the, the, some people try to divide the book into sometimes like seven parts. But again, like in the text, there's not always a clear division of where one poem begins and another one ends and so it can be kind of challenging to figure figure out the book but this the the collection view it is a view that again this is love poetry this is still you know what it looks like it is 
but it doesn't take a view that we should try to read a storyline into it. And again, each of these views has advantages and disadvantages, but at the end of the day, I think everyone can agree, like, this is a celebration of romantic love. Yeah, that's right. And that goes back to the beginning, right? Like, what God created to be good and right and beautiful in marriage is to be celebrated within marriage. And having a healthy view of sexual love in marriage is really important. Yeah. And especially in our culture, where they're yeah. saturated with all sorts of wrong views of our bodies and how they should be used. So, the Song of Solomon helps us to have a more biblical view of like the sexual relationship is good and right and beautiful and to be celebrated yeah. within the place that God created for it. And that goes back to Genesis 2, 24 and 25. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That is the, the box that God gave for the sexual desire to be expressed. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. It's a blessing. And we're grateful to God for giving us that. Um, and so songs, a, song, a Song of Songs excuse me, is a beautiful place that kind of expresses that, that love that God intended for man and woman to have in the context of marriage. Um, so it's beautiful. And so at, at the end of the wisdom literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, there's like no area of our life that's not touched by like at least somewhere in here. Right. <laughs> like, it just, I mean, you talk about work, you talk about uh, relationships, you talk about prayer and praise, uh, suffering. God has given wisdom in this collection for like everything that can come up in our life. And it's just, thank God that he's given us this collection of ancient wisdom by his spirit to navigate all the different crazy things that we right. come across in our life. Well, this is the conclusion of, of the books of the Old Testament. Um, but we are going to do one more episode in this series where we kind of talk about the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. What, what happens between Malachi and Matthew? And there is uh, Daniel 11 that kind of gives us a look into, a prophecy into what that's going to be like. And so we're going to look back into a little bit of historical stuff, but also biblical stuff to kind of discuss what happened in between the Old Testament and New Testament. Lord willing, we'll get to that next week. Yeah, looking forward to that. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, leave us a rating or a review that'll help us reach more people. Um, if you'd like to study the Bible or delve more into these that we've overviewed, uh, please reach out to us, 717-585-0949, or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information on those studies or group studies, check out capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.